got quiet all of a sudden, didn't it? few minutes I'll get to um, where I'm actually going but it's going to take a couple of minutes to get there I'm going to be in just a very few verses in the 15th chapter of John where Jesus talks about being the true vine and abiding in him but before I get there uh, I wasn't going to do this but this is something that I keep in my Bible just to remind me of the different names that Christians are called because and you know Bill was talking about pearl of great price uh, Jesus being so valuable that you sell everything you've got just for the joy of knowing him the surpassing worth of Jesus compared to everything else and you know it's interesting that in the Bible the word Christians only used three times it's kind of Amazing when you think about that. But there, I think it's um, twice in the book of Acts and once in First Peter that you even find the word Christian used. So what do they call Christians? And this has got nothing to do with the message, but just thought I would share it because it, it helps me remember what we are and who we are and what we are supposed to be in Christ. At least five different... New Testament authors called Christians slaves. Slaves to Jesus Christ. Now sometimes the word is translated bondservants, but it really means slave. You're a slave to Jesus. And it was um, often a title that was used in the Old Testament by Moses. And... um, Moses and others were called slaves, and often it was a title of, of honor that you were a slave of God. That you, and now in the New Testament, you're a slave of Jesus Christ. And Christians were called righteous. They saw themselves as being made righteous, righteous by Jesus. They were called elect, the called. And in the Old Testament, Israel was the chosen, the called, the elect of God. And now in the New Testament, it's God's people that are called chosen or elect or called. They were called saints. And um, that's Paul's favorite title for Christians, saints. And saints means separated unto Jesus. It doesn't mean that there is a particular group of Christians that are higher than another group. It means all Christians are called saints. They're called people that are separated unto the Lord. They're called, Jesus calls us friends, and he calls us friends in this chapter 15 of John. And he says, no longer do I call you, you know, servants. I call you friends. You're called brothers and sisters. And that's frequently a, a new title, a New Testament name that's used in the book of James for Christians. They're called children of God and sons of God. And you find that in a number of places in Romans. 
anybody who's made part of the family of God are called children of God. And they're called disciples. And first of all, disciples meant the people that Jesus showed, but by extension, it means everyone that's a follower (coughs) of Jesus. He's a disciple. And all of this meant not just a title, but it meant you're supposed to reflect a likeness of Jesus in your words, in your actions, everything you do. Now, now that I've shared that, <clears throat> uh, many of you know there's a, a famous Christian. He was a Baptist minister in the 18th century, or 19th century, I'm sorry, in the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, a famous English minister. And his sermons went out all over the Christian world, especially in England and the U.S., So he was very famous for many, many years. And the reason I mention Spurgeon is because for a few days after he became a Christian, Spurgeon came crashing back to earth. The first five days he was a Christian, he felt like he was walking on clouds. Everything had changed. And then from the Sunday to Friday, where everything seemed absolutely beautiful and wonderful, all of a sudden, things weren't so wonderful. Something happened in his mind. He found that he still had sinful thoughts, and he could not believe it. He's a Christian, he's been walking on clouds, and now all of a sudden, sinful thoughts are creeping into his mind. And he found that very difficult to understand and to live with. He was sure that he had fully trusted in Christ, so how could this be? How could he still have sinful thoughts? So what he did, two days later on the next Sunday, he went back to the chapel, the little church where he had first heard the message and became a Christian, thinking that maybe he could find the answer to this dilemma. I'm a Christian Why am I still having sinful thoughts? The preacher preached a message out of Romans 7. And in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul writes about the struggle that goes on within a man, within himself. His flesh, and his flesh is that part that's his human nature, his sinful nature. His flesh wants to do the things that please the flesh. This is what he's preaching out of Romans 7. And at the same time, his spiritual nature loves and wants to obey God. So there's this conflict within a Christian. His human nature wants to do what pleases his human nature, his flesh, which is the word that's used, and his spiritual nature, his new nature that he has received when he believes in Jesus, wants to obey God. And so the preacher is preaching from Romans 7. Paul says in Romans 7, What an unhappy man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is taking, excuse me, that is taking me to death? Thanks be to God who does this through our Lord Jesus Christ. This then is my condition. 
On my own, I can serve God, God's law, only with my mind, while my human nature serves the law of sin. So what's Paul, what is Paul describing in Romans 7? Or what he is describing is himself and all Christians. Even the most spiritual and mature know that this means you. Nobody is excluded. But the preacher who Spurgeon was listening to said this meant Paul before he was converted. And Spurgeon listened to this and and this was actually a fairly normal preaching for that time where a Christian could reach a stage of perfection where he didn't sin anymore. He didn't have these sinful thoughts. He didn't act on these sinful thoughts. And so the preacher was reflecting sort of a common thought at the time. But halfway through the sermon, Spurgeon said, I don't believe this. And he got up and he walked out. Um, If we'd have been there, we'd have probably clapped. But years later, after Spurgeon became a, a very famous preacher, he was at a convention. He was at a conference. And there was a man there who preached the same topic, that Christians could reach a state of perfection where they didn't sin anymore. And he said that he himself had reached this point, that he didn't have sinful thoughts, that he was perfected in Christ, and he was without sin. Spurgeon didn't say anything until the next morning. And the next morning at breakfast, Spurgeon got up and he walked around to the backside of the man and he poured a jug of milk on his head. And it says that Spurgeon quickly, or the man quickly found out that he still had his sinful nature in him. And you would quickly find out if somebody did that to you that you would be annoyed and you'd probably say some things and think some things that proved very quickly that you still have a sinful nature in yourself. The important fact of the Christian life is this. A Christian is a person that knows he's got an inner conflict. He's got a struggle with sin. And he often finds himself involved in a war within himself. That doesn't mean that a Christian doesn't experience victory. By the grace of God, we do. But it's a victory in the midst of conflict, in the middle of conflict. It's not a victory over conflict because the conflict is going to continue until the day we die or until Jesus comes back. It's never going to cease. The Apostle Paul is totally realistic about the Christian life. He's not interested in fantasy or disguising the difficulties of the real issues that you face. He tells us, he tells believers that they are involved in constant conflict and inner on the inside of themselves. 
He doesn't describe an occasional conflict. He desires, he describes an ongoing forever type of conflict. And this is what he says in the book of Galatians, a couple of verses here in chapter 5 of the book of Galatians, verses 16 and 18, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Pause. When we, as sinners, come to the Lord in faith, we are instantly born again, and we become new creatures in Christ. God the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And our basic nature, that flesh nature, is changed where we desire now the things of God. We are new people in Christ. But at the same time, our old nature stays. It's not wiped out. God does not eradicate our old nature. We have our new nature and we still have our old. Uh, we have our new nature and still have our old. It's got... It's not God's purpose to remove that nature now until death or Jesus comes. The old nature has a lot of names in this passage that we read in Galatians 5. But in, oh, excuse me, but in Galatians 5, it's called the flesh. When we become Christians, we're caught up in the middle of a conflict that we didn't have before. Before we were Christians, <coughs> there were things that we would do without any hesitation at all, without giving it a second thought. But now, you begin to do the things that the Spirit leads you to do. The Holy Spirit says, you shouldn't do those things as a child of God. And then the old nature says, it's no problem, go ahead and do it. So you've got the conflict going on. It's important that we understand ourselves as Christians. We've got two natures in conflict, but it's not a hopeless conflict. Paul tells us that the, that the solution is to walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, what in the world does that mean? To walk by the Spirit means to walk in obedience and dependence on Jesus. We need to remember that if we're walking, if we're walking in a right relationship with one member of the Trinity, we're walking in a right relationship with every member of the Trinity. You cannot walk in a right relationship with Jesus and not be in a right relationship with the Holy Spirit. You can't walk in a right relationship with Jesus and not be in a right relationship with the Father. So, 
So how do we know that we're in a right relationship with Jesus? How do we know that we're in fellowship with him? And Jesus tells us this in the 14th chapter of John. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says, he who has my command, who ha- excuse me, he who has my commandment and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and will reveal myself to him. And in that same chapter, Jesus says, I will ask my father and he will give you another comforter. And he will be with you forever. And that comforter that Jesus is talking about is the Holy Spirit. He's also called the Spirit of Truth. Notice that Jesus says the Father will give you another comforter. Another comforter means you've already got one comforter. Who is the, the other one that he's going to give you is the Holy Spirit. So who's the other comforter? The other comforter comforter is Jesus himself. He's the comforter that you had before the Holy Spirit came. That's the description of Jesus in 1 John 2, 1, where he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a helper, a comforter with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the first comforter is Jesus. The other comforter that you're going to get when Jesus goes is the Holy Spirit. The disciples had Jesus, the comforter, and now Jesus is leaving. And the Father's sending another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be with us forever. Also notice that the scripture says, don't sin. But if you do sin, because you're going to sin, that we've got a helper with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In the 15th chapter of John, I told you we were going to get there. Jesus is comforting his disciples. He already told them that he was going to die in the 14th chapter. He's already told them that he was going to be betrayed by Judas. He'd already said that Peter was going to deny him. And he told them that he was going to heaven to prepare a place for them. He told him not to be troubled, not to be fearful, because he was going to the Father. And he told them how to live and to be obedient to him, and in effect, how to overcome the conflict that was going to take place within them. He begins by using some symbols that are very, very familiar to every Israelite. He talks about a vineyard. He talks about grapes. And the vines, they were everywhere you looked in Israel because it was one of the staples of the economy. So you had grape vines everywhere. 
and he talks about being pruned like a grapevine. I don't know if you've ever seen a grapevine before. My uncle had one, and he wasn't producing it the way it should. So he cut it back, and when you looked at it, there wouldn't be the foggiest doubt in your mind but that he had killed that grapevine completely because it looked awful. But in two years, it produced more grapes by far than it has ever produced before. You have to cut back the dead limbs. You have to cut back the limbs that are unproductive because the, the strength of the vine goes out to all these shoots and other parts of the grapevine that are not producing. So you get rid of them. And even the ones that are producing you cut them back so that they will produce more than they ever did before. So Jesus uses this analogy, maybe it's a parable, about the vine. And everybody in Israel would know what he's talking about because everybody knows about grapevines, about harvesting the grapes, about pruning the grapevine and this sort of thing. Over and over again in the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as God's chosen vine, his chosen grapevine. Or as the vineyard. The vineyard is the place where you gather the grapes together and press the grapes and make the wine. You find the picture in Isaiah. I won't read it. In Jeremiah in Ezekiel, in Hosea, and in the Psalms. In other words, it's everywhere in the Old Testament, a picture of Israel as God's vine. He plucked them up out of Egypt, and he planted them in a new place, a, line, a place of milk and honey. And he planted his vineyard. He planted the people of Israel that they would grow and produce and bring forth much fruit. And you would think that with all of this, the picture would be, this picture of Israel would be a picture of a, of a nation that is bursting with fruit. But it's not. The picture ends up after God talks about planting his people and how they are supposed to produce fruit and how he has fertilized the grapevine and done everything else, instead of producing fruit, they're a degenerate grapevine. They're not producing at all. They're fruitless instead of fruitful. They pl God planted them in a land of plenty, and what they did is produce worthless fruit. And failure to fulfill God's promise characterized Israel and also characterized the whole human race because we are not fruitful. Apart from Jesus, we are not fruitful. We sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. So Jesus tells the disciples in John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine, 
and my father is the vine dresser. Israel's not the vine. I'm the true vine. I'm the real vine. I am the one that the father is cultivating, and I am the one that's going to produce fruit. Israel failed. They did not produce the fruit God had called them to produce. But I'm the true vine. I am the real vine. And the Father is the one that cultivates and protects the vine. I'm the genuine vine. He's the final, real, genuine vine that the Father has sent as compared with Israel. And the Father is the one that cares for and protects the vine. As the true vine, Jesus fulfilled what Israel failed to do. Verse 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. I'm the vine. Every branch in me, everyone that believes in me, If they don't bear fruit, God's going to take away the part that doesn't. And the part that does bear fruit, God's going to cut it back so that it will produce even more fruit. You think you're never supposed to have conflict in your life? But that's not what Scripture teaches. You're going to have conflict. Why? Because God wants us to produce more fruit. And if everything is smooth and easy, the fruit that we produce will be very little. So God cuts it back so that our strength in him would grow more and more. Dead branches harm the fruitfulness of the vine because some of the strength of the vine, some of the nourishment from the vine goes into these dead branches and they produce nothing. So you cut them away and get rid of them and burn them. So what are the dead branches? Uh, Can Christians be removed from the vine? That's not what this is teaching. If you're a Christian, you're always in Jesus. You're never lost. You're never removed. What we're talking about here are false Christians. Christians are people that claim they're Christians but never were. And they're removed. They produce no fruit. They're worthless. Their end result is going to be burned up. Just like the branches that were cut from a grapevine that were dead. You couldn't use this wood from a grapevine to build anything. The the wood from a grapevine that's not producing fruit, that's dead, when you cut it away, you can't even use it to, to, to be a hook on the wall to hang your clothes because it does this. You can't build anything with it because it's just worthless wood. It won't hold anything. So it was good for nothing except to be burned. And this is what happens to unproductive people that claim to be Christians but are not real Christians. And those that are, those that um, 
are not just worthless vines. Those that bear fruit, they're going to be, they're going to be, well, the ones that bear fruit are the ones that are really connected to Jesus. They're true vines. They bear true fruit. But the Father prunes them so that they were going to bear either even more fruit. Jesus says in verse 3 that the disciples are already clean because of the word he has spoken. In other words, they've already heard and believed the word of God, and that means they've been washed clean. When the disciples believed in Jesus' word, God saw them as clean. When we believe in Jesus, God sees us as clean. Verses 4 and 5, I'll read quickly here. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says he's the true vine and we're the branches. He says that we have to abide in him if we're going to produce fruit. The word abide means remain. We have to remain in Jesus. It's a permanence. You have to permanently stay in Jesus. You have to be steadfast in Jesus, meaning you have to remain close to him. Our fruitfulness Our productivity is directly linked to us remaining in Jesus. And the closer we stay to Jesus, the more fruit we produce. These verses tell us how important it is to remain in Jesus, to draw ever closer to him. How do we do that? We do it through The Bible here tells us in the same chapter, we do it through the Word of God, through studying the Word, to know who Jesus is. How are you going to obey Jesus if you don't know what he said? So you have to know the Word, and you have to remain in prayer. The word abide is repeated ten times in six verses in in these um, verses right here. Apart from Jesus, we can't produce anything. If we don't stay in Jesus, everything we produce is worthless. It has no value in the kingdom of God. It may have a value to men, but it has no value in the eternal kingdom of God. All Jesus, he says, on the way, the truth, and the life, all life comes from Jesus. If we're not connected to the one who has life, the one who is life, and the one who gives life, we're spiritually dead and we can't produce anything. So what is the fruit that he's talking about? What's the fruit that Christians must produce if they stay close to Christ and they obey his commands? Fruit in the New Testament is described as godly attitudes for one thing. Galatians 5, 
tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is. In the fifth chapter of Galatians, in verses 22 and 23, it says, the fruit of the Spirit, and it lists these nine things that are, that are called fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, I'm not sure I like that one, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. This is what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. These are the godly attitudes that characterize the lives of those that belong to God by faith in Christ and possess the Holy Spirit. These attitudes are commanded throughout the New Testament for Christians. You also find in Philippians 1 that the fruit of righteousness or right behavior is commanded. In Hebrews 13, it speaks of the fruit of the Spirit of praise from our lips. And in Romans, it tells us that the righteous will live by faith, and it speaks of reaping a harvest through preaching the gospel. So bearing fruit is an internal growth, first of all, or part of it anyway, that comes by being connected to the vine. If you're connected to Jesus, these virtues, this love, this joy, this peace will grow in you, will increase over time. Jesus tells these things are so, and they tell us that when we do this, our joy may be full. And if you look at verse 16 in the same chapter, it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in me or in my name, he may give to you. Jesus told the disciples that they were clean through the word that he had given them. In other words, they believed in him and they can ask what they wish and it will be done for them. He said their joy would be made full and then Jesus called them friends. And now, as it so often is in scripture, whenever there's the slightest chance that the disciples are going to grow prideful because of what they've been given, Jesus reminds them that all the privileges that they have, this joy that he's given them, this peace that he's given them, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, he reminds them that they've got this, that all these things came to them not because they were better, not because they were wiser than anybody else, not because they made right choices, but because Christ chose them. So there's no room for pride. There's no room for, I'm better than you because I did this and you didn't. Christ did the choosing, and he didn't just choose it because you were smarter, wiser, better, or anything else. It had nothing to do with our works. He chose them 
and set them apart. Why? Because they were supposed to bear fruit. That's why God chose them, to bear fruit. And the emphasis here is on going and bearing fruit. So the fruit is the fruit that emerges from mission, from specific ministry to which the disciples had been sent. The fruit, to put it plainly here, is new converts. One purpose of election then, of being chosen by Christ, is that disciples who have been so blessed with the revelation and the understanding of who Jesus is, they will go to others, they will take to others the faith that has been given to them. That's the fruit that will remain. He says this fruit will remain. After you're gone, the people that you share the gospel with, the people that have come to me, they're going to remain. And then they'll do the same thing. It's a fruit that will last. That's why the union of love that joins believers with Jesus can never become a comfortable exclusivity exclusive type of love where it's just us and no one else it's it's not a, a group love that refuses to share that love with others rather it's an intimacy that always seeks to enlarge itself it always seeks to share the fruit the love the joy the patience the peace with others Jesus produced the fruit that God the Father intended. The revelation of himself and his truth to the world of sinful man. He's the true vine. And believers are joined to him in a living relationship. And when that doesn't happen, there's no fruit. There's no mission. There's no love for others. There's no peace. There's no joy. There's only a separation from the one that gives life. And when that happens, you don't have life either. Let's pray. Jesus, you tell us to abide in you. You tell us to bear fruit. That's what you call the first disciples to do, and that's what you call everyone that belongs to you to do. Lord, we can't do that apart from the word and apart from prayer, apart from us drawing closer to you, Lord, because when we draw closer to you, you draw closer to us. And you give us a desire and a a strength and, Lord, just a great joy in sharing your word with others and seeing their sins forgiven and their joy becoming great indeed. And we give you thanks, Father, and we pray that your word would abide in us and that we would abide in you. Amen.